Welcome to the eighth episode of our conversation series on Christianity and Nationalism. I'm your host, Orniki Mitrevelli, and today our guest is Professor Risto Sarinen, who is a professor of ecumenics at the University of Helsinki. Professor Sarinen published extensively on the Reformation, ecumenical theology, and history of philosophy. He has published a number of books, among which Recognition and Religion, published by Oxford University Press in 2016, are among the most prominent. In this episode, Professor Sarinen will guide us through an intellectual history of a reconciliation from theological, philosophical, and political perspectives. I will speak today on, on the pending case of the Finnish parliamentarian Päivi Räsänen. And uh, while this case may be somewhat peripheral because it deals with, with Finland, it has evoked some international interest, but my, my own interest in this case is not really how it finally turns out to become, but uh, my own interest is more in, in trying to think about free speech and also in Christian terms, the eighth commandment, do not bear false witness. How, how can you develop some kind of not only legal analysis of this kind of case of hate speech, populist speech, but also a kind of moral case and what moral boundaries in addition to legal boundaries you may have in such a case. But first I will of course begin by introducing this case as such. Since 2019, the Finnish politician Päivi Räsänen has become internationally known as the defender of the rights of conservative Christians to speak freely. This is because Räsänen's earlier criticisms of homosexual behavior are now considered as being legally problematic. And her right to utter this criticism is being investigated in a Finnish law court. Originally, the Finnish police investigated four different cases of such criticism. The state prosecutor, Raja Toiviainen, considered that they may violate the Finnish law's regulations concerning the so-called agitation against a group of people. In April 2021, Toiviainen pressed charges against Räsänen in three such cases, and the trial is planned to take place in January 22, so in next month. The investigation and the charges have been a matter of extensive public debate in Finland and also in the international press. Especially American conservative Christians have followed the case closely and repeatedly expressed their opinion that Rasanen is merely exercising her legal right of free speech. 
If she is prohibited from that right, this means that the Europeans are applying totalitarian measures that compromise liberal democracy. The first such statements from the US came in August 2019, and they continued to be published in the English-speaking mass media during 2020. When the charges were pressed, the international discussion became fairly massive. In May 21, so six months ago, then US academics wrote a letter to the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom asking for countermeasures and pressure against Finnish authorities. Maybe the best known of these academics is the Harvard law professor, Adrian Fermeul, a conservative Catholic who has revived the old doctrine of integralism, according to which religious doctrines cannot be challenged by secular powers. Fermeul and other American participants in this debate continued the so-called American culture war, and the Finnish case is now a theater of this warfare. As Päivi Rasanen was the leader of her Christian Democratic Party from 2004 to 2015, and the Finnish Minister of Interior from 2011 to 2015, she is prominent enough to evoke the support of global English-speaking conservatives. In Finland, she has already for decades been the public face and voice of evangelical Christians. A medical doctor by profession and a lay member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Finland, she has no official role in the church. Many secular Finns nevertheless consider that she represents the conservative wing of the majority church, and they may not be totally wrong in this assumption. The official church and the bishops have repeatedly taken distance from Päivi Räsänen's statements. Irritated by this, she has publicly considered to change her religious affiliation to the Russian-based Ingrian Lutheran Church, which is more conservative than its Finnish counterpart. What did she actually say then? During the Helsinki Pride Week, she tweeted that it is against the Bible to hold sin and disgrace as a matter of pride. She also attached some biblical verses against homosexuals to her tweet. In an older article of 2004, she questions homosexual behavior and considers that different ways to express sexuality do not have the same value. While she considers that all humans are equally valuable as the images of God, she argues that God expects us to promote the normativity of heterosexual marriage. Initially, the Finnish police did not find enough material in these and some other statements to continue its investigation. The state prosecutor nevertheless considered that this case needs to be investigated as it is important to define the mutual relationship between equality rights and free speech rights. The legal charge concerns the law that criminalizes the so-called 
agitation against a group of people. This law was promulgated originally in 1970 to complement other hate speech laws, which typically dealt with insults, slander, and discrimination against individual persons identified by name. In 1970, the range of this law concerned, quote, certain race, skin color, national or ethnic origin, or religious confession, end of quote. In 1995, the range was redefined as follows, quote, certain national, racial, ethnic, or religious group, or some other equivalent group, end of quote. In 2011, the range was against, again broadened as follows, quote, race, color of skin, origin of birth, national or ethnic belonging, religion or conviction, sexual orientation or disability, or some other equivalent matter, end of quote. Thus, it is possible after 2011 to press charges against people who have insulted groups of particular sexual orientation. In Finnish legal practice, this law has been interpreted to concern vulnerable minorities. If one insults Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, or homosexuals, it is more likely that a charge is pressed than when insulting Lutherans or heterosexuals who are not considered to be vulnerable. Politicians of the populist Finns party have received several penalties for their agitation against Muslims. It is important in this Finnish law that the agitation is made in public. Thus, insulting emails do not qualify, but other social media normally does. In Päivi Rasanen's case, the possible insults from the booklet of 2004 have been publicly available in libraries also after 2011. This variant of being public is also a matter of debate since one can easily find a lot of outdated material on sexual minorities in the libraries and the extermination of all old literature on this basis is not a proper measure. Given this legislation and legal practice, did Päivi Räsänen break the law? We will hear this in January 22. In the public debate, many persons have already expressed their opinion. The Lutheran Bishop of Helsinki, Teemu Laajasalo, has said that he strongly disagrees with Päivi Räsänen, but does not consider that she should be legally punished. The biggest daily newspaper, Helsingin Sanomat, says in its editorial of October 24-21, among many other things, that a biased reading of the Bible and an outdated scientific view regarding homosexuality do not yet count as agitation against a group of people in the legal sense. My own view is more or less in keeping with these statements. At the same time, I think that it is evidently possible to act against this Finnish law and that the right of free speech needs to be considered as being relative to other human rights. I do not think that this law has any totalitarian leanings. A liberal democracy needs this legislation to secure equal rights of all people, individual cases should be judged on individual basis from these general principles. 
I merely estimate with some remaining uncertainty, I remain pretty uncertain in this case, that maybe Rasanen's statements are not grave enough to be counted as illegal agitation. Similar European cases have yielded different outcomes. Vitus Huonder, the Catholic Bishop of Kur, Switzerland, and Åke Green, a Swedish Pentecostal pastor, were recently liberated from the legal charges in which their speeches against homosexuals were investigated in the law court. On the other hand, Olof Latzel, a German Protestant pastor in Bremen, was considered guilty of illegal agitation against homosexuals and fined in November 2020. In all three European cases, the relative weight of the agitation was estimated and the right to free speech and the freedom to have religious conviction were taken into account. However, the eventual outcome of the Finnish case will not be my primary focus of attention in the following. Instead, I will argue that we need at least two clearly different but equally important boundaries of free speech. First, we do need the legal boundary. In Finland, this will be more clearly defined when the Päivirasanen case is discussed in the court in January. Second, we also need a moral boundary which defines when some free speech is morally wrong even when it is legally tolerated or permitted. If we only consider the legal boundary, then one easily assumes that everything that is legally permitted is also morally right. Normally, however, legal and moral theorists claim that the legal boundary only rules out some immoral actions which are considered particularly harmful by that democratic majority, which is responsible for legislation. Other kinds of immoral actions remain to be tolerated by the liberal society. However, there may be other communities and moral authorities which define the range of moral action in their relevant community. In Finland, the Council for Mass Media in Finnish Julkisen Sanan Neuvosto is the self-regulating body of journalists. It interprets good professional practice. While this council does not exercise legal jurisdiction or public authority, its decisions are closely followed and broadly observed among the journalists in Finland. The eighth commandment of biblical normative tradition, do not bear false witness, serve similar, serve similar purposes in Christianity. The Lutheran Catechism says that this commandment protects each individual's good reputation and that the commandment forbids all kinds of defamation, slander and even insinuation. The moral range of the commandment in Lutheran catechetical tradition is thus much broader than the legal range discussed above. In the philosophical tradition, Aristotle's remarks on the so-called eristic argumentation constitute a somewhat similar moral paradigm. While the fair-minded philosopher argues for the sake of truth, the eristic person argues for the sake of winning the dispute by any means whatsoever. 
The Greek word eris means quarrel or aggression, and thus the eristic person aggressively uses false evidence and faked arguments in order to win the dispute. A philosopher must train oneself to identify and to debunk such eristic argumentation. One can thus detect an extensive intellectual history of ethical rules, stretching from Moses and Aristotle to our current councils for mass media. These rules aim at identifying the morally and factually wrong kinds of public speech. Identifying this moral boundary has no immediate legal consequences. However, particularly grave violations of the moral boundary can also violate the legal boundary. For instance, spreading rumors or complaining for other people's behavior may violate the Eighth Commandment, but such acts do not cross yet the legal boundary. However, bearing false witness in the law court is criminalized. Analogically, the rulings of the Finnish Council for Mass Media do not constitute a legal decision, but particularly grave violations of journalistic practices may also have legal consequences. Now, while it is fairly obvious that the moral boundary and the legal boundary are two different matters of in free speech, the actual challenge is to construct a scale which could differentiate between less and more harmful versions of such speech. In a Finnish article published in 2015, six years ago, I attempted to construct such scale on the basis of some texts found from Finnish revivalistic and evangelical religious treatises. Since Päivi Räsänen very clearly and self-consciously represents this particular tradition, it may be useful to apply the scale to her case as well. To do this, I will briefly explain my attempt of 2015. This article is only in Finnish, because at that time I thought that has nobody is interested about it in outside of Finland, but, but that was before the Päivi Räsänen case. The Finnish revivalist or evangelical movements originate from the 19th century pietism. They remain within the majority Lutheran church, but they have a very long tradition of expressing public criticism of how the majority church is too liberal and does not listen to the word of God, which the revivalists allegedly follow. Sometimes this criticism has led to penalties and exclusion by the church authorities, but for the most part, the bishops and other moderate leaders have tolerated it. During the course of two centuries, the revivalists have learned to express themselves so that they do not break the legal boundaries of church or state law. They move constantly on the edges of this boundary but try to remain within its limits. In my view, Päivi Räsänen's statements need to be understood as current instances of this long tradition of critical revivalist speech. I give some brief older examples from my 2015 paper. The teaching of university theologians in Finland has constantly been targeted by the revivalists as heretic and also immoral. 
In his defamatory book of 1955, the revivalist leader Ura Sarnivara proceeded so that he slightly altered the names of Helsinki theology professors in order to avoid legal accusations of insult and slander. It's a very funny book because you can understand who is meant, but, but every name is changed a little bit. Nowadays, on the contrary, nowadays he would not need to do this probably. Nowadays, it is considered that public persons such as professors need to endure criticism. And, and so the revivalists can today use our real names. So especially the biblical studies professors and especially Heikki Räisänen, the long time, long time liberal New Testament professor was for decades a targeted critic of this kind of speech with his real name, so, so to say. And, and, and because this agitation of, against a group of people was only promulgated in 1970, there was a kind of contrary thing that before the 1970 law, it was also legally possible in Finland to agitate against ethnic or whatever other groups, provided that one did not mention their individual representatives by name. So, for instance, in my childhood in the 60s, in a kind of comical programs in television, you could make fun of some Finnish minorities. The only legal problem was if you identified somebody by name, but as a, as a group, they could be laughed as. But this changed in 1970. Okay. The legislation's changes in 1970-95, and especially 2011, have clearly made the revivalists more careful in their group-related accusations. This is most visible in the printed press, which is nowadays fairly moderate. Uh, actually, I wrote this 2015 paper. One, one reason was that I wanted to look at hate speech from the 50s, from the 70s, from the 90s, and then after 2011. And it was very clear that in the printed press, the printed press of the evangelicals uh, became more and more moderate all the time. So it was much more insulting in, in the older days. So, so uh, and every legislation change seemed to make it more moderate. And, and <sighs> But, but the counter-movement of this was that the so-called agitation against the group of, groups of people has been moved after 2011 to social media and the so-called alternative online journals, which operate without the label of established organizations and remain often fairly anonymous. The Christian Democratic Party members, for instance, remain moderate in their official and printed media, in their own blog sites and in some alternative media, they can nevertheless present extremely populist and alt-right opinions. Leading persons like Päivi Räsänen support the extremists to some extent, but without taking clear stance. For instance, the well-known party representative Patapio Puolimatka wrote recently aggressively against COVID vaccinations policies in his own blog, quoting many American anti-vaxxers. The revivalists as a whole took distance from his statement. So that was remarkable, actually, but it's another story. So that, that actually all revival movement leaders said that this is, this, this is not okay. But at the same time, 
Päivi Räsänen considered in her parliament speech that vaccination passes should be opposed. So Päivi Räsänen is in favor of vaccinations, but against vaccination passes. This may have changed since September. This was in September. But the main point is that, that you always have these rather extreme opinions. And if you are a party leader, then you are a little bit ambivalent. Okay. As such, Two-way and ambivalent statements are very typical in the revivalist speech. My attempt of constructing a scale pays particular attention to the so-called insinuations, which do not openly formulate the stance at hand, but nevertheless give a hint how an evangelical should think. After reading a lot of materials from the revivalist media, I organized their criticism into five categories as follows. And now I would like to see yeah. the slide. Mm -hmm. I am actually speaking of the left-hand column, which says negative. I will later come say something about the neutral and positive. But you see in the kind of left vertical choices are what, what is kind of fair free speech. And then I am now considering this difference between moral and legal boundary so that you have like fair way of speaking then morally wrong way of speaking and then legally wrong way of speaking and now now i come to my 2015 article where i do not yet deliberate on baby rasanen but i'm organizing the materials from the 20th century mostly uh, into these five categories as follows. Free speech and Aristotelian argumentation obviously includes the possibility of fair criticism. Obviously, the evangelical media also exercises fair criticism. So it's very important and necessary, for instance, in the academia to exercise fair criticism to one another. So in, in that sense, negative uh, way of speaking is very positive in terms of finding the truth. Four other categories, however, identify unfair criticism. They represent something that Aristotle would call eristic argumentation or the Lutheran catechism as breaking the eighth commandment. Raising suspicion is the least harmful category. Media very typically uses this category in formulating provocative news titles and trying to catch the reader's attention. Mere raising suspicion does not evoke the attention of the Council for Mass Media. However, this category is very important as it is often employed in the revivalist press as well as in the media as a whole. When the writer constantly raises suspicion on the matters discussed, the harmful effect of this eristic figure of speech can be considerable. Spreading suspicion is the more explicit and straightforward type of insinuation. In this category, the speaker does not merely express unfair questions, but also spreads skepticism and negative attitude to the listeners and readers. The consistent spreading of suspicion may lead to a complaint to the Council for Mass Media. But one can also argue that such consistent skepticism is necessary for many forms of critical political journalism, for instance, when representing the opposition in everyday politics. Defamation is an intentional and consistent mode of harmful speech. In my scale, the category of defamation represents a position which is not considered as good professional practice in the Council for Mass Media. At the same time, 
defamation does not yet cross the legal boundary of criminalization. Obviously, I had some Finnish concepts here, and the English word defamation is a little bit complex because in many, I would say, in American context, it would also already be a kind of illegal way of speaking. But I, I did not find really a better word. So, of course, that can be discussed. But in this scale, I am using it in this sense that it's not yet, it's not yet criminalized. Illegal speech is the fifth category that crosses the legal boundary either in terms of agitation against a particular group or as insulting or discriminating certain individual persons. In my 2015 reading of revivalist texts, the figure of raising suspicion was common and it was also practiced in the movement's printed press. Spreading suspicion was less common but nevertheless also a regular phenomenon. Defamation also occurred regularly, but mostly in the books and blogs of individual authors. Professional journalists and newspapers avoided the category of defamation. When I consider Pavi Rasanen's statements that are now investigated in the law court, I find them to be somewhere between spreading suspicion and defamation. In her famous tweet, she writes to be exact. Now I quote her, or I try to do an English translation. Quote, how is the foundation of the church, the Bible, compatible with the matter that sin and disgrace are taken to be reason for pride? End of quote. The question form of this tweet represents an issue of raising and spreading suspicion. The journalist can often excuse himself by saying that he only asks question, but this question when used intentionally and consistently can morally count as insinuation. This is the case in the tweet as the question is only rhetorical, making the position of its author clear. The latter part of the tweet sin and disgrace are taken to be a reason for pride, is more grave, as it is not a question, but it is formulated as a statement of fact. It is highly eristic in the Aristotelian sense of the concept. It counts as unfair argumentation because the thing spoken of is categorically claimed to be sin and disgrace without discussing what actually happens in Helsinki Pride Week or on what grounds this is the case. It is thus not merely insinuation, but direct defamation. It may also come rather close to being agitation against a group of people. I nevertheless interpret the genre of tweet as something in which no real argumentation can be given. In addition, she does not explicitly mention any group, though implicitly the address is clear and Let's add that it's not only sexual minorities, but also all other people marching with them in this Pride Week, so to say, and bearing witness on them, saying that they participate in this sin and disgrace, so to say. I also interpret the tweet in the light of the author's many other statements in which she has underlined the equal rights of all citizens and her religious conviction that privileges heterosexual marriage as such divine command, which she is not allowed to question. Her case is in that sense similar to the above-mentioned Swiss bishop who defended himself by saying that he was consistently following his religious conviction rather than doing agitation. 
As mentioned earlier, I am not very certain of this evaluation and welcome further legal commentaries. For me as an intellectual historian and academic theologian, the heart of the matter lies in the long finished trend in which the evangelicals very consciously aim to be provocative on the edge of the legal boundary. Like so many others in media society, they aim at catching the maximum amount of public attention without paying legal costs. Whether Päivi Räsänen is successful in this remains for the lawyers to decide. What I find theoretically and intellectually interesting in this is not this legal case as such, but the broader task of evaluating free speech in terms of differentiated moral categories and boundaries. While journalists and maybe theologians are aware of the problems of insinuation and defamation, ordinary people and attention seekers tend to consider that everything that is not criminalized is just fine and right. As a theologian, I want to reach a more differentiated interpretation of the Eighth Commandment in this regard. On the way towards this aim, the five categories of negative criticism are the first heuristic step. In order to reach a moral evaluation of free speech as a whole, we also need to build an analogical scale with regard to neutral and positive speech. So now I'm a little bit leaving the Päivi Räsänen case and kind of theorizing also, also of these scales as a whole. In neutral speech, that is now the second column of this slide, uh, a fair-minded Aristotelian procedure would be a description of all relevant matters. An eristic neutral speech, on the other hand, would employ the figures of silence, disregard, and underestimation to win one's case. For instance, a person can say that he has never discussed the rights of minorities and is thus open-minded. However, to qualify as fair argumentation, mere silence and disregard are not enough. In order to qualify as a credible decision-maker, a person must engage herself with the matters at hand. So, so it's important to see in this case that that what is negative speech can be morally laudable, like fair criticism, but the neutral speech can also be morally wrong, like silence and disregard, or saying that I, I have no opinion, I have never, I have, I'm open-minded because I have never involved myself in this matter. So, 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 but it's still, I have not seen much theoretical discussion on this kind of, let's say, moral wrongness of neutral speech. I think it's interesting, but I'm still need to think more, more about it. Uh, you, you, you should also see that, that neutral speech can not only be morally wrong, but it can also be criminalized. For, for instance, in employment situation, if I imp interview different candidates, and if I, if I kind of disregard some qualities and, and pay attention to some other qualities. So then even though I'm not saying anything negative of anybody, so I'm still guilty of, of uh, wrong judgment and also legally wrong, wrong judgments. With regard to positive speech, I would defend the view that 
encouragement and sympathetic interest towards the views of others belong to fair argumentation for the sake of truth. Uh, this dimension is not easy since one could also claim that criticism is normally the best way to approach truth. My view assumes that the others may be finally right and therefore one needs to encourage them even when my own initial view is different. Let's, let's say here that at least in Finland in my lifetime there has been a kind of some change. When I was a student, my professors, Finns are not very good in positive speaking in, in any, any way. So I think it's not a strength, natural strength of, of Finns. So, so, but in my view, when I was a student, so my professors were kind of automatically saying that critical attitude means really that you criticize, that you act as an opponent and, and that you try to, that the only way of seeking the truth is is to kind of undermine all other beliefs. And, and this is now, this has considerably changed. There have been also some very, I think, very good university teachers who have really not only been positive in themselves, but also presented psychological research on empathy and, and, and other such matters, which, which kind of scientifically show that, that in the kind of discourse or rhetoric of truth finding, also this kind of encouragement and positive interest can serve this truth seeking so this has been this has been maybe this is also generational generational change okay but this is more about this kind of positive aspect of positive positively speaking but Analogically, an eristic argumentation, a kind of problematic argumentation in positive speech would use flattering and adaptation in order to win a dispute. Flattering and adaptation differ from encouragement and interest as they finally aim towards winning some benefit rather than finding the truth. And, and uh, of course, then you can continue this also to kind of criminalize instances of following the problematic leader and so on. There may be ways of developing the scale of neutral and positive speech even further, but I have not yet accomplished this work. A complete disregard of the other, for instance, may in some cases cross the legal boundaries. A full-fledged flattery and adaptation can also be very harmful, for instance, in following an authoritative leader just to secure one's own benefits. Finally, one must be very careful in discussing the practical consequences of the idea that there are legally permitted but nevertheless morally wrong categories of free speech. On the one hand, it is important to identify instances of insinuation and defamation in such matters. Morally wrong modes of free speech need to be publicly addressed. On the other hand, I am not proposing that churches or other communities should establish something like Council for Public Religious Speech. At least in Finland, such council would immediately raise the suspicion of many different stakeholders. What might be helpful, however, could be that some research-based instance would make a regular follow-up regarding how different religious organizations and leaders speak and write in public some kind of barometer of positive, neutral, and negative religious speech based on an extensive amount of public data 
would increase our knowledge of religious speech as a whole. Political and church leaders could follow this data and make informed decisions of how they prefer to speak in public. It is obvious that some of them very consciously choose to speak in provocative fashion. With the help of such public data, we others could see that it is their conscious decision. We might be even able to monitor how the Eighth Commandment is understood and followed in the light of this data. Uh, I have a little bit, I'm coming to my end now, but I'll just say as very final thing that uh, a colleague of mine, professor of uh, study of religion in Helsinki, Titus Yelm, he has now started a project where he uses the so-called big data methods to analyze all parliamentary speeches in Finland. And, and, and all parliamentary speeches for decades where the word religion or God or some other religious word is mentioned. And he just last week in this, in this Pamela Slottes conference, he was uh, presenting his first results, which were complex but also interesting because he has like 10,000, tens thousands of instances which parties quantitatively speak most, most often and which least often and which qualitatively highlight which topics and, and so on. And he was not yet making any judgments, but, but I was thinking when I was listening to his presentation that I, I invented this barometer thing already before I heard his paper, but I thought that it's something similar now that that because you have like sophisticated big data methods, so it's kind of basically fairly easy to, to analyze big amounts of religious speeches and then make kind of make some kind of raw analysis of them. And then if you, for instance, could see that in this evangelical movement, they always spread suspicion or always speak very negatively of this, this, and this. And if in others, it's, it's like this and this, or if, if they only speak of this topic and are silent of everything else, so you could make, so rather than establishing some kind of normative council, this would be like, could be kind of like a descriptive barometer of what is happening. And then, then independently of this, barometer, but on the other hand, basing, basing the judgments on kind of empirical data, one could think about what is hate speech and what is kind of morally wrong and what is the kind of fair criticism and what is unfair. So this is maybe a work to be done some others, but I'm just thinking about this more theoretical possibilities. Thank you. So we will continue by post questions. Uh, comment and let's do so that I will be will be collecting maybe two or three questions and comments first and thereafter uh, Arista will be answering and then a couple of additional ones so any comments or questions thank you thank you for your speech my name is Esther Gems I'm a PhD student in the philosophy of religion and I just want to ask about the applicability of this model, because I think what some people think is a neutral description, others think is defamation or even illegal slander. So how would we capture that problem? Uh, let, let's take Aaron and then uh, yeah, two questions first. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, um, just 
testing idea here. So I, I don't know, but I, I was thinking about what you said about how this kind of speech is sometimes sort of used aimed aimed to be provocative in the Finnish context. And I'm coming at this from from the uh, from the American context. But in in my view, um, evangelicals in the US uh, in the US very often uh, use hate speech precisely to keep culture war going. So it's sort of a performative strategy. Um, and and uh, so that means all that, like wherever the boundaries are and wherever what kind of boundaries we draw, they will be pushing them because that's exactly the point, points to transgress those boundaries and, and to sort of keep them out of the culture war going. Um, uh, and, and in the US, of course, it's also an electoral strategy on the right uh, because it's, it, it leads to a lot of votes. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering like, if, if defense of free speech in many ways is just a smokescreen for the culture war. And, and then if by arguing about where the boundaries should be, we're sort of missing the point because the point is to transgress them wherever they are. Um, and so... But I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong to to, to think about boundaries, uh, but it seems that we are somehow entering into their game and behaving exactly like they would want us to behave by by drawing those boundaries. Um, and when we draw them, they would transgress them again. Uh, and introduce yourself, please. Oh uh, yeah, so uh, we have met actually <laughs> at some point in the in the past. But um, my name is Aaron. I'm I'm a former student of Mika's and currently a lecturer here. Krista, please. Yeah, good questions. And uh, first of all, um, I certainly have a kind of normative interest here, here because I'm trying to kind of interpret of eight commandment and trying to make this different of difference of legal and, and moral speech. And uh, and the first question uh, asks on good grounds that that whether there can be any consensus of on of this kind. So 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 if if whatever boundaries we draw, others would somehow say that they they are not they are not here. Um, here I here I. Uh, must admit that I am this kind of old-fashioned old-fashioned German Hegelian Habermasian style <laughs> enlightenment person or Humboldtian person that I, I think that I think that in a kind of reasonable communicative discussion uh, it is possible to achieve not a consensus but some kind of some kind of uh, fairly fairly good common uh, understanding of of what is insult and what is slander and what is hate speech and how how insinuations are morally harmful so so uh, I see that that if you if you are a kind of totally postmodern relativist, so then you say that okay, all all is just Foucaultian power game, so 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 to say. And I'm I'm not I'm kind of I kind of consciously distance myself from 
Foucaultian power game tradition, and I, I, I subscribe to the kind of Habermas Bonnet Rainer Forst style of contemporary Frankfurt sociology, where you are, where you believe in kind of rationality. I don't believe in rationality so much as John Rawls, who would claim that in a Kantian sense that you could somehow build a theory of justice. That would be too much, but I, I think like like for instance Rainer Forst in his big book on tol- toleration that you can somehow define meaningful limits. And I think that the kind of best proof of that is the kind of practice what, for instance, I don't know how it's in Sweden, but in Finland, for instance, the Council for Mass Media and some other professional councils pretty well, pretty well can somehow explain the ethos of their profession relative to their community. So, but I, I admit that I may be a little bit optimist. So I believe this in this kind of that there can be a kind of marriage of kind of let's say kind of open marriage of rationality and morality. And this is this is my this is maybe also my my kind of um, uh, position with regard to the second question because if we if we say that okay let's drop the free speech altogether and and just uh, just uh, find something else where our normative claims can be made like the kind of individual human rights or or some some let's say equality rights which always kind of overcome free speech rights i think that i think that that does not really help but i think we rather i think if we lose the free speech rights uh, then we are in much worse situation vis-a-vis the i i i completely agree that the, that the evangelicals are are using pushing the limits and using this in their own power game. So the, and 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 it is very clear that if, for instance, the fin, in Finland, if in Finland the legal boundary would be kind of redefined. So in the 1950s, uh, in the post-war situation, the evangelical boundary was in the divorce laws. They were vehemently and aggressively against the possibility of divorce. But now half of them are themselves divorced, so no, none of them any longer so defends this boundary. So they have kind of, they are not making big noise of it, but, but they, they have just kind of, it's no longer a relevant boundary. Now it's kind of often homosexuality, but it's also this free speech, right? So I'm, I'm saying that, that uh, I'm kind of defending, defending the kind of European concept of free speech, vis-a-vis the American concept, and I'm, I'm saying that it's worth defending this free speech concept, even though people are all the time misusing it. But this is maybe another instance of my, of my optimism uh, uh, and belief in the enlightenment values. So, so I think that the freedom rights are worth to be defended. They should not be dropped, but but it's possible to have like more common good interpretations of, of them. And, and, and I think that, that there is a way out of this power game, but, but it, it may be very complex to say, so where to have the... But I, I think that, for instance, the, 
the European Court of Human Rights has, meanwhile, um, it has dozens of decisions on this kind of agitation against a group of people uh, kind of issues. And it is starting to have a kind of established legal practice, which is different from the American pra practice. So, yeah. Yes, then we have another Aaron and then Jane. And sh uh, sh should we also say that uh, yeah, Sinica, yeah. Thomas, Katja, if you want to pose a question, yes, yes. just uh, write it in the chat or yeah, scream yeah. out louder. Or then you just uh, use the uh, uh, like a hand uh, uh, symbol. Uh, yeah, the thing, uh, from reactions, exactly. you raise your hand. Okay, it's good. Better. I see Thomas. So we take three questions now. Aaron Yen and Thomas. Okay. okay. Uh, thanks for your talk. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm a researcher in philosophy of religion here at uh, Lund University Center for Theology and Religious Studies. Um, I worry that my question collapses into a version of either the previous mm. uh, two questions, and I'll keep it uh, quick in any case. Um, what work are you hoping uh, that fleshing out the category of moral judgment independent of uh, legality is going to accomplish in terms of persuasion or coercion um, for, for the population of either ordinary people and attention seekers, as, as you put it, or uh, for particular groups of instigators that are more specifically defined? Uh, yeah. Okay, so thank you, uh, Risto. Um, uh, it was exciting listening to this because it's uh, 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 I, we don't really have a similar debate in Sweden. Uh, since the Oak Green uh, case, uh, I, well, and you should correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that uh, Swedish evangelicals, uh, they are not going really down this road. They are not testing the... the, the um, uh, limits or pushing limits in, in this way. But the interesting thing is that uh, we've had another round of the free speech debate this autumn in Sweden, but it has been apropos the uh, violent uh, death of, of, of the Swedish artist and cartoonist um, um, uh, Lars Wilks, uh, and um, uh, he died in a car, car crash uh, very tragically. Uh, but his long history of, of insulting uh, Muslims in his, his art, uh, and, and then uh, when he dies, so it, it, refers, it resurfaced this debate of, of how courageous he was to he, he dare to stand up for his free speech and so on. Uh, so this is an interesting parallel case, but here are the, the rules are kind of inverted. So these people are targeted, are religious people. Um, and, and it's not uh, religious speak, but it's being provocative and, 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 and targeting someone. Uh, so and th this brings me to my question because you focused entirely on, on religious speech and religious speech as, as, as uh, oh, well, of course, as was the topic of your paper, uh, but as a genre that could be analyzed and and and. and um, we created this well, the, the vision of, of a kind of bar barometer, um, uh, but I wonder how, how fruitful uh, that is, and how uh, whether uh, religious uh, speech as, as a category uh, might not just hamper us from from precisely going down more to 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 to, to the context because what is uh, religious speech and uh, in in one context could be uh, this are doing the harm, but. Uh, Often uh, it is against a certain form of, of uh, or, or the, the hateful speech or the targeting speech could be against uh, um, against uh, uh, religious people, so to speak. Uh, so so uh, I don't know how to to, to phrase uh, this into a question, but 
I mean, is there a danger of, of having this religious speech as, 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 as a finished category uh, of, of uh, analyzing? And, and don't you need uh, more, more context uh, sensitivity, so to speak, uh, when it's, uh, is it courageous to, 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 to stand up for free speech like the, the defenders of, of Lars Vils would claim? And it's, it's not very courageous in the Swedish context. It would be... And then let's take Thomas and remember to introduce yourself. And sorry, I didn't and, Yeah, but I, I trust that we, we all know you. <laughs> yes, uh, um, I am Thomas Appelqvist, a lecturer in theology at Karlstad University, and Risto was a member in my committee when I mm. had my doctoral disputation. Good to see you, yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, I uh, have a, a sort of one question, but there are many aspects in it. And uh, to make this more as a theological question, I like very much that you put in the eight commandments in the discussion. And um, I also uh, think a little bit like Jane, that uh, there might be some need for um, taking into consideration in which context you say a thing. So it's not only what is being said that is important, but also why you say it, why you say it right now, and also how you say it. And um, especially considering that the actual standpoints are often quite normal standpoints from co coming from those conservative contexts that are analyzed. So it's not the standpoint in itself that is a great surprise, but uh, maybe the media that are used for communicating the standpoints. And then now here comes my actual question that um, uh, you talked uh, a lot about this politician, uh, but as far as I know about this case, there is also the uh, bishop, that is as an aspect of the same case. Uh, maybe I don't have the full picture, but I have understood it that there is also a conservative Lutheran bishop being charged by the same accusations as Pevi Reisinen. And if you also have this dimension in the picture and speak about the the Eighth Commandment, I um, I wonder if you have some ideas about if it's the same analysis that will be made, or uh, do we have to change the analysis? I mean, also from the Lutheran um, teaching about secular and spiritual regiments and the different duties of an ecclesial minister compared to a politician. Um, and what is the reason that, do you think that people focus so much on her and so little about him if they are both uh, accused for the same uh, action? Mm, yeah. Krista, please. 
thank you. Tough questions. Hope I remember remember all of them. So, um, first question: What work is this moral boundary doing in in addition to legal boundary? So, um, my own kind of little bit philosophical background is in the kind of recognition theory as elaborated by Honet and Taylor and, and many others. But in this, in this kind of modern theory of multicultural society, you kind of think that you must recognize other positions in addition to your own uh, as valid in the society so that they are not thrown out or criminalized. So you, in, in a kind of genuinely multicultural society, you cannot always reach agreement, but you may need to define a kind of outer limit of legally approvable opinions, and then others could be criminalized. But that means that then inside the legal border, you have a uh, a kind of genuine plurality, and uh, and what what to do? And then then maybe the easy answer would be okay. Let all flowers bloom in this legal plurality, so to say, or let's have a kind of segregation that that uh, I can live with Jehovah's Witnesses, but I don't want to have anything to do with them. But I consider that they can be in in my society, but I don't want to. But what I am saying is that this. That, for instance, when the Lutheran Bishop of Helsinki says that I don't want Päivi Räsänen to be criminalized, but on the other hand, I also think that she is wrong. She is morally wrong. She is kind of working against Eighth Commandment, but that's not a crime. So that's a kind of moral, moral flaw. So I'm, I'm saying that in my kind of maybe naive enlightenment, so position, the idea of multicultural society does not need to end with segregation or with bringing other people to law court, but you can have a kind of rational discussion within the liberal society, and you can make moral judgments of other people without criminalizing them. So, so, so this is the work what the moral boundary is doing. So I can I can have a kind of, and I think that in a kind of optimal case, which is hard, but 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 sometimes I have the feeling when I'm discussing with Finnish evangelicals that I have the that we kind of genuinely disagree that we also disagree, that we may also a little bit condemn one another, but on the but we also think that we don't want to criminalize one one another. So we are we we can have this kind of I think the that this kind of, that you can have a kind of ethical discussion in a society which is not the same as the legal legal discussion. I think this is the kind of valuable, valuable because then you, then the only options are not segregation or criminalization. So this is the work the moral boundary is doing. So this is this is where I'm kind of defending my, my position. But let's let's say let's say now that Concerning the second and third question, I may concede that you have a, both of you have a point. So, so to so to say that that um, 
when it comes to this kind of barometer or this kind of religious speech and its kind of moral evaluation, it's really, I, I worked in 2015 uh, with this older material because I wanted to say something about the kind of how, how evangelicals in Finland use, use, use their media and their public speaking. And now I'm a little bit like broadening this case or making a kind of theoretical, more theoretical case on the basis of Päivi Räsänen case. And, and happily I can rewrite this everything after the court has made a decision because, because there is no point in publishing anything before the court has made its decision. But, but this is valuable feedback because I, I see now also that on the one hand, I think it's valuable to have this kind of eight commandments. So say that in this kind of religious and theological speech, the kind of moral dimension is something which is not in addition to religion, but it's kind of integral part of the Judeo-Christian tradition, namely Eighth Commandment. And that especially in Lutheran tradition, Eighth Commandment is not only a kind of law court commandment, but as in, in, in the catechetical tradition, it's, it's definitely a moral commandment. So I think it's valuable to bring this tradition but I also see, especially with, with Jane, but also a little bit with Thomas, that, that there is a danger of, let's say, moral shrinking, because religious speech is very abundant, and it has many other roles and many other contextual roles than defining a boundary between liberals and conservatives or defining a role in some moral issues. So I'm not, I'm not Kantian in the sense that I would think that religion within the limits of reason would only be about morality. So I definitely think that, that the existential questions of religion cannot be shrunk into a kind of moral judgment. And in that sense, it's, it's a good point when I'm saying that, okay, if I want to develop a barometer in the, in, uh, in the big data of public religious speech, then this barometer, if this barometer is basically moral barometer, then it goes, then it's kind of biased. And I, I agree with that. So, so that's a, that's a good point. So, so. Can, can I just. Yeah, uh, yeah please. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Short, because this might clarify what I'm after. Uh, I, I entirely agree with you on the moral boundary. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So, 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 and I think especially in the Swedish context where, and take once more the last Wilkes debate that, that uh, because you are able to, 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 to insult or, or to offend, uh, because you know it, I mean, it can feel like Sweden that you have all the right in the world legally, then you just mm. do it just because you can. And, and that is, of course, when when questions about context, uh, about uh, uh, moral boundaries become become important. Uh, but I think there is a risk at the same time, yep. uh, which is not an argument against the moral boundary. But we need to to, to see how it, yep. uh, the hypocrisy going on, because um, uh, in certain uh, cases there is a clear moral boundary, especially yep. after Me Too. Uh, uh, if Lars Wilkes had been someone uh, making extremely sexist, offensive uh, images of, of women, he, he wouldn't be hailed as a hero. Uh, so we have a, and I'm very happy for it, a moral boundary. We don't want uh, uh, the, the um, um, disparaging uh, images of, of women being posted by artists and by, by uh, here. Uh, but uh, in the case of Muslims, we have a 
debate climate now where it's it's kind of legitimate to to, to offend Muslims because they, they they should take it right. because they should learn to 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 know the rules here by us etc etc. So uh, my concern is that uh, well while I'm entirely for the idea of a moral boundary, uh, we we also need to 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 bring it down context and see when when uh, is there. A, General, we that is in agreement that uh, no, we don't want to to, to or have strong anti-Semitic or strong uh, misogynist uh, uh, offensive speech, uh, but we are happy to tolerate or at least a large uh, no. part of of, of of also liberal debaters are happy to tolerate offensive uh, uh, oh. images, etc., rhetoric against yeah. Muslims. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. That's a good, good. good. I, I must think about it more. Let me let me say one more thing to Thomas. So. Incidentally, I was also doctoral supervisor of Johanna Pohjola, the bishop who is now, now being so. I'm so old, I have been so doctoral supervisor of so many people. So Johanna Pohjola is the bishop of the so-called Missions Province, and so the kind of independent Lutheran church, which is a kind of, still uses this, I don't know whether, is it a province of what, province of Swedish, conservatives or province of Kenyan conservatives. I don't go into that, but but I, it's it's generally considered, but the interesting thing and relevant to Thomas's question is that this Luther Foundation or Missions Province is considered the most conservative branch because it kind of left the Finnish church, the Lutheran church, and became even more Lutheran than the Finnish Lutheran church. So, so it's like a kind of... Uh, so it's a kind of free church with this bishop. Uh, and when I did my 2015 article, I I studied their magazine. And I initially thought that, okay, since they are the most conservative, maybe they would be the most aggressive. And that was totally not the case. They are actually quite peaceful in their in their internal communication, and especially after they left the church, they have nothing to, their existence is not dependent on this kind of constant opposition and constant criticism. So in this free church situation, they still criticize abortion, and that, but their identity is not built on this constant criticism of the established church. And also Pohjola as a person is, in my view, maybe Mika thinks otherwise, but but uh, I think as a person, he is a kind of rather peaceful person and he kind of considers what he speaks and he's not a politician. So he's a little bit, in my view, but this is, this is just my interpretation. I think that Bishop Pohjola is a little bit accidentally a stakeholder in this because he's happened to publish this 2004 Räsänen, Räsänen pamphlet. So, um, so, but this is my interpretation. If you would ask him, he would probably support Päivi Räsänen and so, so to say, but you don't find this, for, for this rhetorical analysis, you don't find all this problematic rhetoric in and that's the reason why I why I uh, well in 2015 he is in in my sources but I'm I'm saying that to my surprise uh, I didn't find any of this problematic speech in 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 this branch of Finnish Lutheranism yeah 
Yep. Then we have Sinika's hand up. Well, I'm Sinika Norihaus, and I'm I have this reflection or question from the field of education, where I work with teach education schools. And I'm curious because in, in schools you see, and I guess it's the same situation wherever you look, you see the, the tensions between moral and, and, or you see actually like a dynamic with the, uh, it almost like um, uh, the moral boundaries being uh, challenged all the time within the school context. So I'm a little bit curious, but still it's not very often you, you, you end up being illegal, but you deal with moral boundaries all the time. So I'm curious about your view about the role of institutions, old institutions that very many uh, citizens go to, like schools or the field of education. Is it like uh, slowing down or is it or are institutions like education, media maybe uh, fastening some processes? And then we take another question. We have one minute for something or we have still time to move. Yeah, we have time for you. Okay, so very quick question. I'm also postdoc here. Um, I was wondering if you can talk about generalizability of this kind of model in non-democratic states. What could be kind of uh, unintended consequences of this model? More Putins, more Islamofascists, more Erdogan's in the spaces where there is no necessarily rational debate in the way you describe. How would that interesting moral boundary work? And what will be an unintended consequence of that? Listo, you get the last yeah. part. Very good questions, these two last ones, also very broad questions. When I was a theology student 40 years ago, uh, the general trend was saying that we have religion in schools because it's like moral education. So that was in the 70s and 80s. And um, that is no longer the case. Now, now, now it's more about this kind of information about the external world with its pluralities and so on. Um, I, I, I somehow, I don't want to bring the moral boundaries everywhere. That is not my, that is not my intention. But, uh, but on the other hand, just as Sinika Neuhaus says that institutions are relevant when boundaries are challenged and when they are discussed. If nobody would challenge them, they would not be relevant. The kind of relevance of boundaries is, is, is in this kind of critical, how do I say, border control or frontier control. And, 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 and this is maybe that I encourage somehow institutions to practice moral debate. And I think in some sense, I don't want this school 40 years ago back, but, but there was something in it that the idea that you, that the children learn so kind of little bit morality, not kind of moral agreement, but, but, but this kind of moral language through, through this kind of that. I think, I think institutions should be encouraged to practice this kind of debate. Then, then this, 
Then the last question. I don't have a strong opinion. Um, um, The, the, the dilemma, there is a certain, this is the dilemma of the enlightenment. So if we, if we somehow say that, okay, we can rationally, we can rationally uh, define moral boundaries and we can offer them to, to the others as well, like Putin or some, somebody. So this is a little bit arrogant so that you are kind of offering your own moral consensus to others. And this is kind of arrogant. But then the opposite view is that hmm, we can have in the Western part of the European Union or central part of the West European Union, we can have the enlightenment values, but China and Russia and maybe even United States are too stupid to understand them. And, and, and we should not the savages should have their own discussions and we should not we should not offer our values to savages that's also arrogant because then we consider the others even in more negative terms than in the first case so and this is the this is the dilemma so that that if you if you if you proceed on the on the enlightenment avenue then you think that your Western model is the standard of everything. And if you proceed into the kind of postmodern avenue, then you, then you are somehow thinking that you are so clever that no one else is as clever as this avenue. And my, my own position, so I'm very much influenced in, in, in this kind of debates by Hans Küng, who was kind of courageously offering this kind of global ethic and, and saying that China should have human rights and the human rights are in that sense not Western but absolute that they, they should somehow. But I, I admit that there is the danger of imperialism lurking but, but that, that's the, I have, the postmodern view appears to me even more arrogant in some, some way. Yeah.